Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. We had to switch some things around. Unfortunately, I had mentioned last week that this week's guest was going to be someone related to one of the many rock star deaths we've experienced this year. Unfortunately, there is a lot of drama going on behind the scenes on this one. The family may or may not want this story to be out there. And so it will either run later or it may be scrapped entirely. I don't know for sure. So instead, we're just going to move everything up a week. So this week's guest is Jacob Slichter drummer for the incredible power pop band of the late 90s, early 2000s, Semisonic. Now, everyone knows Semisonic from this song right here, Closing Time. It is still as ever-present today as it was 17, 18 years ago. The story of Semisonic was told beautifully in Jacob's memoir, a book that came out about 10 years ago called So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star. That book had a major impact on me. and. The story or the formatting of that book is the, basically the inspiration for this podcast. People's rise and fall, their best stories, how they're feeling as things are coming and going, the transitions. That book was a major, major inspiration for me. Now because that story was already told so eloquently in his book, we don't really get into it here. We get into sort of more the post-book life. and. I've read this book a couple of times. I recently reread it again. So I wanted to get into some of the questions that I had that were lingering after I had read it. And my personal opinion, and I say this in the book, I, as much as I love this book, I didn't feel like there was as much attention being shown to the band ending or coming to an end or going on hiatus, however Jacob wants to define that as I would have liked to have known. And so I try to press a little bit more on what those waning days might have been like. Jake was a great sport. He's a wonderful man. I really enjoy talking to him. I hope you will enjoy this as well. Basically though, I more than anything, I want you to go check out this book. If you are at all a music junkie, you owe it to yourself to read this book. It is one of the best books in the rock music memoir canon, if you ask me. Jacob called me from his home in New York City. When I read your book, probably 10 years ago, shortly after it first came out, mm -hmm. it was just one of the most delicious books I've ever read in my life. Oh, just, wow. Thank I, you. It absolutely was. And I thought, I would read something like this from every musician, whether I like them or not, whether they're big <laughs> or small. Uh -huh. I want to know all of this detail. This is the yummiest bit of information I've ever heard. Uh-huh. And it became kind of an obsession for a couple of reasons. Number one, I loved everything you put. But number mm -hmm. two, there was, if I had one gripe, or not a gripe, but one thing that, was le that I left wondering about with the book was that I felt like the first 250 pages are telling us the buildup of this band, and then the last 25 are like the fall of the band. Mm -hmm. Now, having reread it again recently, as I mentioned, I had assigned it to a bunch of friends in a book group we're all a part of. So I, uh, I have like a fresh batch of questions for you. It was a little more fleshed out than it had been the first time, but I thought, man, what, wouldn't it be great if you could talk to your favorite artists about the exact things that Jake mentions in this book, but you could kind of push them a little bit on sort of the, when things get bad and when they start to come apart and the downfall. Mm -hmm. I want to know more information about that. Okay. So on the one hand, if I was a really big deal, you could sit back really self-satisfied and think, you know, I 
inspired this huge thing going on over there. That's and feel really good about yourself. But instead, I'm just kind of a little deal. And so instead, you can just think to yourself, well, there's a guy in Denver who really likes my book. So I, I'm sorry that I'm not a bigger deal so that I could give you most of the credit. I, I, yeah, I, I'm, I, I, it's not a thing for me. I don't I don't think of myself as a big deal either. Well, so there you go. Okay. All right. Okay. So I want to know more about those days. I want to know. About the know, end of the band. The end of the band. Yeah, I have questions. Or the end of the band's touring and sort of. Because we never really broke up, so right, the, the true, end of true. the sort of main period yeah. of the band. I'll give you an example. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've I've lost jobs before, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's those lead-up to maybe you know things are going bad, and so th- there's those days like on a Sunday night when you just can't, you're so sick with anxiety that you have to go back to work the next day. Sure, yeah. Or those moments when your boss comes by your desk and says, hey, let's talk for a minute, and you know full well you're going in there to get fired or get, you know, lambasted for something. Mm-hmm. That sick, sinking feeling, I, I know what it's like to live with that. And I right. wonder if that is at all attributable to or a, an example of how you might have felt in those waning days when the royalty checks get smaller and the crowds get smaller and the interest gets smaller. How are you feeling in those days? I think that the thing that we, or at least I, and I, th- I think this actually speaks for Dan and John, although you'd probably want to check with them, but yeah. what I really remember most is there's no winning here. Uh, you know, I mean, we you, made a record. That? What do you mean? Well, I mean, in the sense that there's kind of an illogic to this particular thing that we're pursuing because we were told, for instance, we made three records. So Semisonic mm-hmm. made three records. The, our first record, our first album was called Great Divide. Our second album was called Feeling Strangely Fine. Got your tape and it changed my mind. Heard your voice in between the lines. Come around from another time where nobody ever goes. Our third album was called All About Chemistry. Mm-hmm. Our first album, Great Divide, was a critically acclaimed commercial flop. Mm-hmm. Our second album was a critically acclaimed commercial success, and it had a hit song called Closing Time on it. Mm-hmm. And then our third album, All About Chemistry, also got some very nice reviews, but was sort of, in terms of sales, sort of much more like our first record. But what what sort of had been hanging in our thinking at the time was, you know, when, when our first record sort of didn't do so well, I think at least I was thinking, well, we'll do better next time. Mm-hmm. And then the next record came out and we sold, so our first record sold 30,000 copies. Grows and it's all. 
right. which, you know, I thought, that's not shabby. <laughs> No. You know, but our record, of course, back in the 90s, that was sort of for major label releases, that was considered yeah. very shaky. Our second record, Feeling Strangely Fine, had a hit song on it, actually several hit songs, Closing Time being the biggest, and then there were others that were sort of hits overseas. Nobody knows it. But you've got a secret smile And you use it only for me Nobody knows it But you've got a secret smile And you use it only for me So use it and prove it Remove this world of sadness I'm losing and blue but you can save me from madness We sold a million and a half copies of that record. When we went in to record our third record, our record company said, this can't be another feeling strangely fine. Mm. Because back then, not even a million and a half records was enough yeah. to satisfy your record company. Sure. And so we were sort of, for that last, for the making of the last album and the touring of the last album and the dealing with the radio stations and all of that stuff, we were sort of kind of more and more just frustrated with the fact that the goalposts were so far, unrealistically out of reach in terms of succeeding on a major label. And I think that we were exhausted from 10 years of touring yeah so you know I, I you know we were sort of frustrated with our label and our label was frustrated with us why aren't these guys selling more records and then we had been touring for 10 years and it's exhausting work you know we'd be out a lot of those years we were out on the road like 200 days yeah you know right. in the year and that's just yeah. really demanding physically dan and john were both married mm -hmm. dan had a a daughter at the time who had had sort of a lot of challenges early in life and had to spend the first year of her life in the hospital. And so there were just a lot of reasons why continuing to sort of try and win at the record industry game just didn't feel like it made any sense, you know, okay. or it seemed like it, it needed some serious rethinking and, it was maybe just time to just sort of take a break. So okay. that's what we did. So you had warmed up to the idea of it coming to an end before it actually did sort of come to an end. Were there not those days when you're... Well, you know, I would say that, I mean, we loved... To do and, I mean, I, it was frustrating in terms of like, God damn it, you know, I thought we made yeah. a great record and what's wrong? So there was that yeah. kind of frustration. But, I mean, the decision to sort of take a break was kind of a band. It was a totally unanimous decision from the band. Okay. So and there wasn't a sort of... You around other labels and tried, continued to try. No. We didn't get the sense that other labels were eager to hire to okay. sign us. You know, who, who's to say that we wouldn't have faced the, the exact same form of record business illogic yeah. that uh, we faced at our own label? Yeah. But when you say something like, you know, it was ultimately the band's decision to walk away, what were you walking away from? It sounds like at that point there wasn't much to walk away from anymore. You Well, we could have kept touring going. on our own. Okay. And uh, we could have, you know, just gone back into the studio and made a, another record on our own. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's okay. how we started. So right. we were plenty okay. experienced in doing that kind of thing. Sure. Okay. And that, that's, I want to get into more, I, I have a lot of questions about that too, but so there weren't those sinking feelings. So, uh, well, there were sinking feelings the whole last the whole record. Okay. I mean, as we toured yeah. it, not as we made it, but like yeah. as we toured, you know, and we'd get reports that, you know, well, radio's not playing your song. And, yeah, yeah. You know, and I kind of knew what that meant because I'd been through it before. Yeah. I'll give you an example. I can relate to some degree now at this stage in my life, putting out this weekly podcast for the first time, in my life, I'm doing something that I think is sort of creative, right? Uh -huh. And it's a huge boon in my life. It's changed the way that I approach my life by having this 
creative outlet. And every Tuesday when I put out my new, my, I should say my production partner, Yan, and I put out our new episode every Tuesday, because I'm seeking people who are a little more obscure, I'm mm-hmm. not talking about you, but in general I'm talking about the people. <laughs> maybe who, you are, though. Well, maybe, but who, you <laughs> yeah. already you know, told yeah. your own story. So I'm, I'm trying to find the people I don't hear from and tell their story. Yeah. And sometimes the you know there's a lot of attention you know they something will go viral and sometimes it just sort of sits there mm-hmm. and there's a part of me that feels like my whole heart and soul went into this thing I'm trying to tell you a story about something sure. you should care about right so I'm I'm starting to relate in some ways to the back half of your book or the back 25 pages of your book when something that you're putting your heart and soul into creatively is not landing well and not only your heart and soul your body. Land. Yes. I mean, in the most real way. Like, Dan's voice was blowing out, you know, a lot because of all the shows and all the travel. You know, we were exhausted. It's hard work. People who say, well, I really respect the bands the most who travel. They're the real bands. And part of me thinks, well, yeah, you should respect them because that's goddamn hard. But I wouldn't disrespect the bands who, you know, want to stay at home. Yeah. Because it's like, it's just... It takes it out of you. You know, you put your whole heart and soul into chemistry, and the single comes out. It's not landing like you want it to. Are you? Um, I mean, I want to get as specific as you'll let me. I mean, do uh-huh. you get? Do you get a panic attack? Do you feel nauseous? Do you get depressed? Or do you think? Are you the kind of person where it's like, well, we'll get them next time? You know, there's another. There's plenty of other of other singles on this album. We'll get the next one. I'm curious where your head is at. I, uh, I wasn't terribly optimistic. I always thought we had a chance. I really loved the record. But, yeah. you know, it's such a fickle thing. You know, we had songs on our very first record before our big success that I thought were great. Sure. And yeah. those never saw the light of day. So I knew that a great record, or, you know, I knew that something I thought was great yeah. could just be ignored. And okay. so that possibility actually seemed very real to me. And I wasn't, I, I don't think I had panic attacks. I just okay. was, I was sort of like just watching, you, you ever been in the kitchen and you see a dish falling and it, it feels like it's in slow motion? You're like, yeah, oh, uh-huh. that's going yeah. over. It was kind of yeah. that feeling. Okay. You know, and, and what was weird about it was the fact that I could see it much more clearly than, for instance, all of my friends who were seeing, and family who were seeing us on Letterman and... Mm-hmm. Leno and all these things, and they didn't understand that it 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 kind of didn't matter that we were on Leno mm-hmm. or Letterman. Uh, what mattered was we weren't getting played on the radio. You know, they'd see big billboards of us, and they would think, well, now they've finally arrived. And but they didn't realize that the money for those yeah. billboards had been spent months earlier. It was all just yeah. kind of going to come apart. So there was no real depression. Um, well, no, there was depression. It was depression. There was. Okay. I would just say it wasn't panicked. It was more like, uh, okay. crap. How how did that depression manifest itself? I'm sorry if this is too personal, but very few people are. Uh, I don't know. Just, you know, in. it made it harder to get through the days. But, you know, I, I mean, I think actually one thing that really saved us is we were playing shows. Okay. So in the shows, uh, regardless of what the radio is doing, the shows can be fun. Yeah. You know, I mean, you don't sort of play a rock show to sell records. You play a rock show because you're a performer. I know that maybe sounds a little bit like a line, but I think anyone who's a performer will hear that and understand that the reason you get into the business in the first place is you just really like doing it. It's not like you don't get into music because it's like a a sort of an investment scheme. It would be the world's stupidest Sure. <laughs> plan for financial success. Right, right. So okay. you do it just because you love it. And yeah. fortunately, there was always that. Okay. Now, when you, I mean, obviously, if we can touch on the money side a little bit, I'll follow uh-huh. your lead. You tell me, you answer however you want to answer. Okay. I'm guessing after closing time and, and uh, everything that you're, you obviously, you say in the book that you find that you buy a place in New York. Well, no, I rented a place in New York, and then years later, uh, my wife and I bought a a place. I had sort of dreamed in the book of, like, buying a brownstone, which remains far beyond my means. But, (laughs) you know, at the time, I was thinking, well, if we're going to have the year that the record company seems to think we're going to have, this was right before our third record was released, then brownstone, here we come. But it didn't work out that way. 
So you had to have seen, though. I know you weren't the primary songwriter on any of these, no. on the bigger hits, but you um, you're getting a plain performance royalty. And no, well, that. actually, Dan split the songwriting royalties. It was an agreement that Dan sort of came up with. It was a very yeah. generous arrangement on sure. his part. Where okay, good. The arrangement was basically this. Dan is the leader of the band, and all members of the band share equally in its financial success. That's kind of the REM model, too. I know those yeah, I think REM are. was kind of Dan's inspiration for it. Probably. Okay. So there has to be a moment when you're seeing your checks get smaller and smaller. Sure and smaller, right? Yep. When that begins to happen, it's kind of like they say, you know, don't quit one job until you have another. Have you sorted out what the next stage of your life is going to be about by well, the time those checks start becoming smaller? Sure, and they continue to do that. Uh, I teach writing at Sarah Lawrence, a professor. They're an adjunct professor, so it's not the most secure mm-hmm. livelihood. But, you know, sort of, you know, I wrote a book. I teach music workshops here and there. I consult, you know, I'm just sort of the kind of person Mm -hmm. that people ask for perspective. Okay. I'm not quite sure why that's always been the case. They just Even before the book? Yeah. Wow. Like, back when I was, like, you know, even before Semisonic, people, I'm just the kind of person someone would just say, Jake, I want to... We're, tra- we're going to paint our house, and what color should we paint it? I'm just for some reason they call me up, so I do that kind of okay. stuff. So I kind of cobble it together. Okay, well that sounds good. You touched on this earlier. I said I would come back to it. Why was the the ending of Semisonic so final? You know, what it was this decision within among the three of you to just leave it where it is and walk away, and everyone go off and do their own thing. Well, I actually I think it was sort of not final because we we didn't say we're broken up. We said we're yeah. going to go on a hiatus. And we've actually okay. since then gotten together to record a few things. We haven't released oh. them. We're going to play a show in January in Minneapolis. I just saw that. It was announced today. I think yeah. Dan so, that on Facebook. Yeah. So, I mean. We should let everyone know just in case. January 7th, First Avenue in Minneapolis. You guys are going to play The Great Divide, your first album in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Right? That's great. Yeah. How often do you play out like that? It seems every few years. It's probably more like we play whenever an opportunity that feels like it makes sense presents itself. Okay. You know, because now we live in three different cities. Dan lives in L.A., mm-hmm. and um, I live in New York, and John still lives in the Twin Cities. You know, we're sort of tri-coastal, okay. east, west, and north. So we do like playing. We love playing. And sure. we talk with each other on the phone all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. we're we're very good friends still, which is great, actually. Uh-huh. But we just, you know, we now have different routines in our life. I like writing a lot. I mean, I love playing drums, and especially sure. with Semisonic, it's such a really fun thing. But I also know that there are um, things I get out of my writing that I can only get there. And, you know, John has a couple of cool music projects that he's doing in Minneapolis, and Dan yeah. has a really great career as a sort of songwriter, yeah. producer, like None of us feel like we're good. missing anything or like, okay. I think one thing that really helped us is that I think all of us view Semisonic as a success story, as good. an improbable okay. success story, yeah. not the big one that got away, because it actually didn't get away. We actually yeah. had okay. some great success. What got away from us was even more success, but that's, okay. that's a, that's, we don't have, I don't think anybody sort of, I mean, I, I look back and think, boy, if this had gone differently, we yeah. might have broken through to an even bigger level. But I right. don't look back and think like, God, what a shame. Right. I don't when you look back like that, do you, can you pinpoint one thing in your mind that would have made that difference? I'm actually the very first album. Down the single they the chose for our first yeah. album, I feel, was the wrong single. Absolutely it was. I always had thought that our first single should be a song called FNT. Fascinating thing You delight me And I know you're speaking of me Fascinating thing Get beside me I want you to love me I'm surprised that you never been told before That you're lovely and you're perfect and that's 
fascinating new thing You've seen naked and want a temporary savior Fascinating new thing Don't betray them by becoming familiar It just seemed to me, uh, you know, every band has a sort of a song that feels like their signature song. Mm-hmm. And that one, to me, just felt like, you know, this this song is really who the band is, and everybody right. loves it, and it just feels like, if I were going to introduce the band to someone, this is the song with which I would introduce ourselves. Okay. But instead, um, MCA Records, because they wanted to sort of break through on alternative rock radio, chose a different song, a sort of a, an emotionally darker song called Down mm-hmm. in Flames, which is a great song, but I just don't think it's... It's right. not the kind of song, no. you know, some songs make a great first impression and some songs sure. don't do that, but then they come back later and sort of just, yeah. they really stick with you. And I think Down in Flames is more of that second kind of a song, I but agree. you don't have yeah. that kind of chance on the, on the radio. Yeah, my buddies and I at the book group were discussing that very thing and how it's a good song, but it doesn't encapsulate who you are and it doesn't announce who you are. Exactly. I wonder, though, and it's interesting, and this is maybe too insidery of a question, but does the success of Feeling Strangely Fine, does that not course correct the mistakes made on The Great Divide to where it balances out in the end? Not quite in my mind because, well, just think of like, oh, yet yet another big song from Semisonic, Closing yeah, Time. Yeah, right. Right. How that how different that story is from here's sure. a new band here's you know yeah. for a lot of people we were a new band with closing yeah. time, right? So I think that that's that's the difference. Okay, you bec- you go from being a one hit wonder to building on a legacy. You have yeah you have a you know a bunch of arrows in your quiver that are good songs that people might know and okay I get it yeah. Okay. Uh, does Dan's success does that hinder at all? Semisonic's ability to reform or play out more often? The answer would be yes if John or I were sort of like pounding at the door and saying, hey, when are we going to do this? Because, of course, Dan does have a super successful career. But Dan is just as much wanting to do these shows as we are. Really? And I kind of feel like somehow we've avoided... You know, you read a lot about sort of legacy bands, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. 70s rock acts where like, the drummer's like freezing in his, you know, shack in North Dakota while the right. singer-songwriter's out in his swimming pool in L.A. and the drummer wants yeah. to like play some shows and make some money and the singer doesn't want right. to do that. That's not what's yeah. going on with us. I feel like we're pretty much all on the same page in terms of liking okay. to play shows. We all we all really have a fun time when we do it. That's huge. Yeah. Just a couple of weeks ago, I went and saw a Lost 80s live show, uh-huh. and it was. Flock of Seagulls and Naked Eyes and Wang Chung and Cutting Crew and oh, wow. New Shoes and all these old 80s bands, you know, When in Rome, all these. Uh-huh. And from what I hear, uh, marketers would lead you to believe, and this is kind of buoyed by the fact that VH1 Classic has recently changed direction, that we're on the beginning stages of like a 90s nostalgia resurgence. Uh, that only makes sense. Yeah. <clears throat> 
And so I'm thinking it's a matter of time before, instead of lost 80s tours, there's going to be lost 90s tours. Well, they already have those, I think. I mean, I've seen, I forget who the bands were, but I there was something yeah, like was was it Third Eye Blind and a couple of other, Fastball oh, okay. and Third Eye Blind, yeah. or I don't know, some of those bands that were big 90s bands are out sort of yeah. touring. I mean, one thing about Semisonic that's kind of unusual is that closing time actually never really disappeared. True. You know, it's been in movies. It just sort of keeps coming back in sort of the conversation. So if anything, uh, more people may know Semisonic now than did maybe 10 years ago. Maybe not 20 years ago, but I, I really credit the song and Dan's the songwriter. A lot of people find that it speaks for some... Right. It's universal. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Real life. They were the group that sang Send Me an Angel. You remember that song? I don't, but that's that's more about me than about the song. Yeah, no kidding. Boy, that's an iconic song. Anyway, okay, well, his name's David Sterry, and he's the Uh singer of this Australian band, Real Life. They had a couple of big hits. One of them is like one of the biggest, Send Me an Angel is one of the biggest 80s synth pop hits ever. Anyway, he's in, he lives in Australia, and he can, at this point, make a living off playing these sort of nostalgic shows and tours and everything around Australia whenever he wants. You uh-huh. know? And I'm just envisioning there being a day when 90s acts like Eve Six or, you know, what like you mentioned, Fastball or Third Eye Blind or whatever, that becomes their livelihood then, too, you know? that it's a constant nostalgia circuit. And there are a lot of people who like that. There are some who kind of fight against that. They don't want to do it. But with the likelihood of Semisonic ever being involved in that kind of thing or even having it as, like, you know, an exit plan, maybe if things down the line in about 10 years, 5 to 10 years, when this becomes more viable, we could continue on as Semisonic. I don't know if that even plays into your plans or if that's just, like, not even, we don't think like that. We don't think like that. That would be my answer, that... I think we think about what we want to do. If some opportunity came up and we were just really interested in it, like if one of these shows came up and it and it just felt like, wow, that sounds like a lot of fun, and um, or that mm-hmm. just really seems like where we're at in terms of what we want to do right now. You know, I know your show is kind of about hustling, mm-hmm. but I don't think we're actually interested in hustling. You know, and, and I'll tell you, you know, Nothing that ever went right for Semisonic was the result of hustling. Uh-huh. Uh, it was the result of a lot of hard work. For instance, Dan's songwriting output. Yeah. Or the uh-huh. band touring so much. We never sort of were a band who are sort of like, let's think about releasing our own band of sneakers or. Yeah. True. You know, we're just not. We're not kind of interested in that okay. stuff. Okay. And and I'm not poo pooing the idea of playing shows as a way of making a living, it's mm-hmm. totally awesome. As I said earlier in the show, you know, we're playing this First Avenue show, and you said, how often do you guys play? And I said, well, we play whenever something comes along that feels like it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, okay. you know, it, it has to sort yeah. of make a sort of a larger organic sense with what's going on in our lives. You know, I think what sparks, I'm realizing as you're answering this, I think what sparks me asking a question like that is that as a regular guy who has a regular full-time job, the idea or the prospect of Rockstar being an, a, a, an alternative that might be out there within reach just always seems more enticing than regular guy with a regular job. And well, so in my many, practical it, mind, I there's think a lot to be said for it. Rockstar, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. there is something there is something super exciting about playing shows and all of that. Yeah. But I think it's got to be more than just like, oh, here's a great way to make some money. We all do music, yeah. and music remains like a central part of all of our lives. But I think we all try to protect the specialness of how we do it. Okay. Well, let's talk music for a second. I mean, I, it, I, you know, following you on Facebook a little bit, I get the impression that you play out occasionally. It's not it, like we've established. It's not your right. primary focus or anything. Are you sort of a gun for hire if somebody locally needs a drummer or wants to, you know, put Jake Slicker or Jacob Slicker on their... I've done that, but that doesn't or? seem to happen much. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So what is your musical outlet now? How do you... I mean, I have a band it? in New York that I play with. That was, it's sort of like a punk band as Bowling League. We meet every once in a while and rehearse, and every blue moon we play a show. 
and that's fun. That's probably the main, you know, I do other music, but in terms of rock and roll, that's kind of the main thing. Okay. I'm going to throw in some questions that came up from the book and that some of the listeners and my buddies who had just recently read the book kind of threw threw out there. Okay. I think I know the answer to this, but, I mean, you guys were, you reached your success just barely under the wire before music, the music industry became a shell of itself. Do you think there's? I mean, it actually started to become a shell as we hit our. Like we lost a lot of record sales to Napster. Yeah, very true. I think I discovered Napster around 2000, 2001. Yeah. So it would have been yeah, just barely happening. Do you think there's any possible way a band like yours would have reached any success in a climate like today's music industry? I think so, but maybe it would have happened very differently. For Semisonic, it happened by way of the radio. And my sense, I'm just not current enough in terms of the workings of the business to say, but my sense is that if you were going to succeed today, it wouldn't be because of the radio, it would be because of other things. Okay. Yeah, probably true. So, okay. But I, I mean, I think that, you know, Semisonic, Dan's a great songwriter. Mm-hmm. And having great songs, you've always got a chance. Sure, that's true. That's interesting. A lot of people I interview for this show have said that same thing. Now, this might be too personal, or you may choose to not even answer it very directly, but did you ever come to resent Dan or anything as being the front man and primary songwriter? Was there ever any jealousy or anything like that, or did you see yourselves as a unit? Oh, I definitely always saw us as a unit. I mean, there are times when, you know, like, for instance, People introduce me and they'll say, hey, this is Jake, you know, he's a drummer, mm-hmm. plays in this band Semisonic, and the people's faces are still blank. And then, then they mm-hmm. say, you know, the song Semisonic, and then, I mean, uh, right. Closing Time. Right. And they'll say, you wrote Closing Time? And I'll say, no, no, I, I played drums right. on it. And then they go back yeah. and sort of. Right. And, you know, I think it's in moments like that where it's not so much uh, envying Dan as just sort of like, you know, wishing. I was a song, you know, I, I'm a songwriter and I just write songs too slowly and I. I wished I had found a way to be more prolific. And I, I don't think I would call that envying Dan, but I, I, sur- I certainly do sometimes look at Dan and say, God damn, how does he do it? You right. know, the guy is like a songwriting machine. And, he is. You know, By the way, i got to put in a plug, anyone who's listening. I really loved Dan's last solo album. Well, both um, of his albums. Yes. The most current one was fresher on my mind. But yeah, I yeah. really uh, he's, he's special. I, I Absolutely, agree. and that leads me to something else that I was thinking about when I was reading the book. It was it was honestly hard to tell how close of friends the three of you were. Oh, really? There were times, yeah. There were times it felt to me a little bit like a almost like a business arrangement. Not entirely. Maybe it's because you're sort of self-deprecating, so you play yourself as like the underdog of the three and the the least I don't know wise uh, in the ways of rock stardom. I was. But I couldn't really tell. Yeah, I'm sure Okay, I mean, I I think that part of maybe what you're reading is something I discovered early on in the band is that, and you may remember a scene in the book early on when we pull into a fast food restaurant and I'm the last in line and I I get to the dining room where everyone's eating and Dan and John and and our sound man, Brad, are all sitting at separate tables. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. Yeah, iconic image. And and what I learned, I was new at that point, what I what I learned, not too much afterwards, was that you really value your privacy. You know, so I wonder if, like, when we were on the road together, you really would give the other guys space mm-hmm. because you needed it. Yeah. You only had a little bit of time of the day to yourself, and the whole rest of the day was with other people. I mean, right. certainly you can, like, you know, like Thanksgiving. Yeah. When, when you go to Thanksgiving and when the company arrives, you're on. Yeah. Very and true. you know how exhausting that is. And you're just like dying sure. for a moment when you can just be on your own. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if a little bit of that sort of a thing, the just the, the routines of being a band on the road might look that way. But, you know, yeah, Dan and John and I are like all best friends. Good. Um, okay. Good. Yeah, for sure. I think I was maybe wary of writing too much about them in the book. I could see that. Because 
I wanted to respect their lives. I didn't want to speak for them. I showed them the book before I released it and just wanted to get there. Like, yeah, I'm cool with this. Okay. Um, Because I didn't want to sort of like put anything out there that they were going to go be like, why did you say that after the fact? But um, no, we're very good. Yeah. Pretty, pretty okay. tight. I mean, and I feel very lucky that way because I know a lot of bands who aren't that way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's. I mean, so it's funny you say that because, for instance, if you go on, if you look at your book on Goodreads, uh-huh. where everyone, you know, everyone can sort of rate it and write a quick review, some of the more consistent criticisms, and I don't agree with these criticisms because they were, I liked that this, that this is how you wrote it, but um, one of them was that. There were no, like, groupie or drug stories. Well, excuse the fuck out of me. Exactly. That's I mean, my, my you know. My thinking is, like, can't we tell the story of a reasonably well-adjusted guy and what rock world is like for him? Does it yeah. always have to fall into the cliches? Yeah. That's exactly my feeling, too. <laughs> but I didn't know if by not touching on those at all, if they if you were sort of just keeping it secret or if they just were not really a part of the world that you were in there for a while. We're not that kind of a band. I mean... That's what I thought. Dan and John... uh, Dan was married the whole time we were on the road, still is. John was basically dating the person he married, basically just as the Mm -hmm. band stopped touring. I had girlfriends, but I didn't write about them because I just didn't think they had signed up to be written about. True. You know, and I'm like good friends with all of them, and, and... I don't, you know, here's the deal. You have to understand that I was writing a book. I I was not assuming that readers really cared about who I was. What my assumption was is that they wanted to know what this world was like. Mm -hmm. So it's different for me writing a book than like Bruce Springsteen or Keith Richards or someone like that writing a book where you're like, well, I want to know about the life of Keith Richards or whoever. People don't know who I am. and and, And I wasn't assuming that they wanted to know. Right. So I was limiting the, the, the focus of the book, which yeah. is a decision you have to make as a writer, like what's in and what's out. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I could have put a whole bunch of stuff in there about my family and right. whatever, and that, that just... It's not about you. It's well, yeah, you. I mean, I don't think your, readers yeah. really would have cared, right. uh, or not the readers I had in mind. Sure, sure. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I completely agree. And I, just for the record, I have to say I'm on your side. I, that's why I say I feel... I, I I love your book so much. Well, thank more you. Than, I mean, it it means more to me than Semisonic's music, no offense. Uh-huh. But the book touched me in bigger ways because it just showed me what was cap- what was possible. Uh-huh. You could get an artist, no matter what level they're at, to just be honest, how refreshing that is. Well, I had an advantage, which was we weren't that successful. I mean, I think it would have been harder. I think it's probably harder to write a book about your life if you have really massive success how I, I it's harder to be honest and i know that there are Maybe. people who have been that there's more at stake for you when you know you're a bigger name there's also more of those books i mean rod stewart pete townsend bruce springsteen they all have their books right. how many mid-level regular guy books do we have not as many you know right. what i mean so i i that's why i think yours is so crucial Thank you. In the scope of rock journalism, you know, it's a it's a very unique, important piece of the puzzle. There's some great books that I mean, uh, you may have come across Jen Trinan's book, mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. I'm Cracked Up to Be. Yep. Lori Lindine's book, Pedal Pusher, mm-hmm. and Michelle Leon of Babes in Toyland has a brand new book out. It's really great. Oh God, I can't remember the name of it. It was. It's the the second part of it is a rock and roll fairy tale, I think. Okay. Um, okay. But it's a Michelle Leon's fantastic book. Okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah. 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 There's books out there. I mean, Carrie Brownstein wrote, you know, one I think earlier this year or last year about life uh-huh. and Slater Kenny and stuff. They are there, but they don't get as much attention. Right. Probably because the person isn't as well known. But so anyway, I'm glad that you contributed your piece to this dialogue. I sort of lucked out and was like one of the first ones of a yeah. sort of wave of similar books. Okay, I just want to throw a couple more questions out to you, if you don't mind. Okay. One thing that caught my attention, and a bunch of my buddies' attention as well, was there was that part where you were talking about when you were being interviewed, I can't remember if it was Howard Stern or a different one, where they asked you if you guys were religious, and the other two said no. And oh, yeah, really, Love Lines. 
Yes, that's it. Yeah. And you were really conflicted about whether you should say that you were or not. And you said yeah. you were. Yeah. But then you didn't you didn't expand on that. Right. Tell me more about your spiritual side, if you don't mind. I would call myself a devoutly religious person who probably doesn't fit into. I, I have great qualms about religion, especially all of its role in sexism, homophobia, transphobia, mm-hmm. queerphobia, yeah. bigotry of all manner. You know, it's just appalling. So I'm, but it, yeah, I mean, it's like a really super central part of my life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. So you consider yourself a Christian? Yeah. You I go do. to church on Sunday? Yeah, I mean, I do. And then I, I almost feel like I have to sort of like footnote it so that I can say I know. I'm, I, I'm not like... Uh, I know what you mean. You know. I know yeah. exactly what you mean. But, but I mean, I say, you know, partly for me being religious almost first and foremost means critiquing religion. Yeah. Uh, because that's that. the world we live in where religion mm-hmm. does all of these awful things. Yeah. So um, I think that, you know... Almost the very first thing that I try to attend to as a religious person is critiquing religion. It's sad that we have to kind of apologize first. Well, it's just the way it is. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 it's, it may be sad that we have to apologize, but it's much sadder all the things that religion has done. Yeah, very true. It's just the 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 legacy of century millennia, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. Horrors is. very real and has to be kind of front and center if we're going to be very real about what we're up to. Right. Very true. Okay. Interesting. I was curious where you fell on that. Mm-hmm. I'm also curious too, you mentioned how you and the guys are still really tight. Are there other people from other bands that you're really good friends with and keep in touch with? I mean, are you close with Stephen Jenkins of Third Eye Blind? Or Never you, met those buddies? guys. I never What's met that? I never met really? the Third Eye Guy Blinds. Yeah. I don't think we ever played a show with them. Um, it just seems so obvious. Okay. Yeah, let me see. Like, are you friendly with anybody? Sure. I'll, I like some of the guys from Three Pound Thrill. Very close with those. You know, talk with those guys all the time on the on okay. the internet and emails. And sure. let me see, Tim Smith, who yeah. plays in Cheryl Crow's band, and I think is in, in Jellyfish, and great guy. Um, I sort okay. of like we we touch base once in a while. God, all kinds of people, the guys from the Verve Pipe, you know, just bands who with whom we toured. And then, of course, all the Minneapolis bands, they're yeah. just like kind of just, if you're ever in the Twin Cities, you're just, you can't walk yeah. down the street without running into, you know, all kinds of people there. The, the guys in the Honey Dogs, uh, okay. the guys in the, uh, the Hang Ups, and the Owls, and, nice. you know, all kinds good. of amazing musicians, for sure. Big community up there. Okay, good. Yeah. I think that's pretty much it. I had some smaller. I have one other. Okay, I have one other question. Okay. One other question. I know I'm keeping you. That's uh, okay. 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 There was a line in your book that it really, there's been a bunch of them, but one of them in particular I wanted to see if you could expand on. I think I know what you mean, but I'm really curious how you define this. Near the end, when you were talking about how you had to sort of rein in your personality when you would hang out with, regular quote-unquote people right you know what does that mean exactly well it would mean that, that exactly? when you're on the road and you're doing interviews you know you have to become this sort of expansive person you start to take over conversations because that's what's wanted from you mm-hmm. i remember once we did an interview where someone had a microphone and they they said so you're from minneapolis and they then they turned the microphone on us and that's like very <laughs> typical they didn't even ask a question they just sort of said minneapolis go you yeah. know and yeah. that's kind of how it is when you're being interviewed all day long yeah. um that's you know people just want you to start talking um, sure. but what i would notice is i'd go over to you know i'd get home off the road and go over to friend's house and i would just would not shut up i became this mm. sort of really awful Guy Smiley kind of twenty four seven MC or sort of uh-huh. interview subject, and I just was like, God, I'm just awful. I just <laughs> these are my friends, and here I am. I'm just talking about myself mm-hmm. all day long, and it's it was just a really creepy kind of feeling, and okay. and I just kind of it was not that I was avoiding my friends. It was that I was avoiding being this kind of interviewee persona in front of them. 
Yeah, had to dial it back. Yeah. I'm not used to it yet. Mm-hmm. Personally, when did you get married? And do you have any kids? And No kids. We got married in 2007. We met in 2001. And Oh, wow. Um, yeah. She's a, my, okay. my wife, Suzanne, is an amazing poet and uh, sort of my writing mentor of sorts. That's great. Yeah, we met in 2001 and have been together ever since. Great. I know that from listening to you on other interviews, you had mentioned that you still, I think you even uh, consult or teach writing online if people want to find you. You'll, I don't know if you still do yeah, that. Yeah, they can uh, They can go. I have a website called Relax Into Writing. And yes. uh, the people who are um, curious can, you know, relaxintowriting.com and then mm-hmm. there's a little link if they want to email me. Okay. Do you anticipate at some point writing another book? I, I yeah, I have one in the works rocks. that I'm hoping to wrap up one of these years. <laughs> and is it fiction or nonfiction? No, nonfiction. Okay. Yeah. Can you tell us what it's about? I don't. Uh, I mean, okay. I don't talk about it, but um, okay. it'll. Okay. I think it'll, it'll make sense to you when it comes out. Okay. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. Okay. And or in the, the subject matter, yeah. Maybe this isn't as interesting as I think it might be. Is there? Is there a difference? How has the book kind of changed your life? I mean, you you had this one life-altering experience as a rock star, and then you had another one as an accomplished author to a book that I don't know if it sold a million copies or whatever. No, it didn't. <laughs> okay, it sold a lot. But, I mean, it sold. I'll tell you what it did is everybody in the music business read it. Yeah. Or yeah. not, you know, not everybody, but a, 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 a lot of them did. Yeah. Dan was at the Grammys a few years back when he won for Best Song with the Dixie Chicks. that, you know, people behind him would tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, I read your drummer's book. (laughs) You know, and that's really fun for me, you know, and and I think Dan really has fun sharing that with me because Dan knows how much I wanted to be a songwriter. Yeah. And this is sort of like the the next best thing for me. Yeah, good. Well, great. Thank you, Jacob. I I don't know, do you care, Jake, Jacob, do you care? I go by both. Okay. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for doing this with me. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Your book was a big game changer for me. I'm so happy to hear that. uh, Yeah. I mean, I like the band, but I love your book. Well, thank you. There you have it, Jacob Slichter. I love him, and more importantly, I can't stress this enough. If you at all care about music and you have not read his book, so you want to be a rock and roll star, you owe it to yourself to do it. It is so good and so informative, and for me, as you could tell, it was somewhat life-changing. So get it from the library, buy it on Amazon, get it on Audible, whatever you have to do, but check out this book. It's not even that long. It's an easy, fun, informative read. Now, next week's guest is going to be a member of a band that was around the same time as Semisonic, very similar sound to Semisonic. This one is a listener request. So come back next week and check us out then too. Huge thank you to Yan, the man, Makevich, for putting this together. Please find us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Please write us a review if you don't mind, a good one or a bad one. I don't care. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can communicate with us that way. You can let us know if there is somebody out there like Jacob, an artist that you love, that you would like to hear more from. 
please tell me who that is. I'll try and track them down and I'll get them on the podcast if possible. You can also send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Oh, by the way, this song right here that you're listening to is called El Matador and it was the song that Jacob wrote on their third album, All About Chemistry. I wanted to showcase a song that was entirely Jacob's creation and this is it. So I hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. But time keeps pushing me on now And I'll ride this wave till the end Please don't go Don't